Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks, so if you're just discovering the Bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favourite app. And if you want to help us keep going and keep expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Bunker regular and political commentator, Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. Delighted to be here. Thank you for getting up early and thank you for joining us. So, <laughs> uh, so crashing straight into what's a busy week. Today, we'll see the publication of the Northern Ireland Protocol legislation. What are we expecting to be in this? Much more wide-ranging clashes with the protocol than were expected even by the gloomiest forecasters. So large chunks of the technical arrangements look like they will be suspended. The green lane for goods will be quite arbitrarily expanded. Section 15 gives ministers executive powers to suspend even more of the protocol arrangements without even going to parliament. That weirdly also has the the effect of circumventing the actual consent mechanism in the protocol that requires the assembly to vote on how it thinks it's performing in 2024, which was a you know provision that was put in there right from the start. The biggest clangor, in my view, is that it pretty much scraps the role of the European Court of Justice as final arbiter. I mean, from information leaked to Politics Home late last night, it seems like, mm. to use a technical phrase, this is really kicking off. Um, Alliance leader <laughs> Naomi Long has accused government sources of outright of lying, said they haven't been consulted. Even the DUP said, we've only seen bits and pieces, but it's a movable feast. The Republic of Ireland's foreign minister late last night said that it threatens the relationship between them and the British government. Just how bad a mess is this? It's awful. It's absolutely awful. I mean, it... it it just looks like the only people with hands on the steering wheel at the moment are the ERG and the DUP. Johnson dare not stop it since Truss is pushing it through and he cannot afford to take a less Eurosceptic position position vis-a-vis his main rival for the leadership, right? So Truss, by pushing this incredibly Brexiteering piece of legislation through has effectively marginalized the prime minister because there is zero room for him to to take a position to the right of her, to the more Eurosceptic side of her. And if he takes a position to the less Eurosceptic side of her, then he risks her resigning and he risks going into a leadership election situation in front of his MPs and membership as the less Eurosceptic candidate 
of the two, which is bizarre considering Liz Truss supported Remain throughout the campaign, was quite a vocal Remain supporter. But there you go, those are the, the, the joys of rebranding, I guess. Resistance to it will be wide-ranging, and, and that's putting it my, mildly. I mean, you have Ireland condemning it, you have all Northern Irish politicians except the DUP against it, the, the One Nation wing of the Tories is already basically briefing against the government and trying to marshal opposition to it. All opposition parties are against it. The House of Lords will is bound to kick it out. Northern Ireland business organizations are speaking against it. The CBI is speaking against it. You know, sources at the White House and, and Congress in the US are against it. There's a possible judicial review, of course. And that's before you even get to the European Union. Hmm. I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned just there the, uh, the element that cuts against the European Commission. What reaction are we expecting from the various bodies over there? Um, look, from the EU, what it always is in such cases, the, what, they, what the EU will do, and we've seen this because there was another proposed piece of legislation that, you know, that wanted to break the protocol that the, the UK was trying to push through Parliament before it actually had a trade agreement. So in the in-between transition period, when the protocol was in effect, but we didn't have a trade agreement yet, the UK tried this shtick once before, and and the, the reaction from the EU was exactly what it will be now. So they will urge for a negotiated solution. They will they will warn that if the legislation is passed and implemented in a way that is incompatible with the treaty, they will immediately activate legal remedies and they will have those lined up, as it were. The EU won't take preemptive action, as it were, on a on a suggested piece of legislation because it's nothing at mm. the moment it doesn't have a legal standing they will warn what they will do if it comes into effect and if it's implemented in a way that is incompatible with a treaty the the problem with this piece of legislation being pushed through is that if there's an interpretation point the you might go to the arbitration mechanism and say is what they're doing incompatible with the treaty or isn't it the, the European Court of Justice provisions in this piece of legislation trying to sideline the, the arbiter to which we agreed a year ago, I think that will be difficult to interpret as anything other than a flagrant breach of our obligations under this treaty. And that's because the European Court of Justice has never been used as an arbiter. And the only reason for you to set aside some provisions of the treaty is because they are working not as expected. So how can you claim that the arbitration mechanism is not working as expected when it's never been used and set it aside? I think that's a really ugly legal pickle the UK is putting itself in. And I have the feeling that because of that, the EU might go straight to tariffs and sanctions, so effectively straight to the start of a trade war, and say to the UK, if you think our reaction is disproportionate, you go to the arbitration mechanism. 
and sticking with legally questionable government policy. Um, <laughs> of which there are many right now. <laughs> a smooth segue. After the High Court said last week that the first flight to take asylum seekers in the UK to Rwanda could go ahead tomorrow, campaigners against the policy say they'll now take their fight to the Court of Appeal starting today. As things stand, the BBC is reporting this morning that the legal challenges have already reduced the number of people expected to be on the flight from 37 to single figures. Mm. How are we expecting this Court of Appeal hearing to pan out? Look, it's very difficult to tell, but probably negative in my view. Remember, these are still emergency moves to injunct the grounding of the flight. Okay, so this is not to determine the substantive issue of whether the policy is unlawful or not. This is to stop it before it goes on. There are some cases which are being appealed from the previous decision, and there's some new challenges by several charities, um, which are based around the fact that Rwanda is basically not a safe place to send people, which means that the the um, the consequences of implementing this policy could be catastrophic for the people being sent there, and therefore it's safer for the court to stop the flight until it decides on the legality of the policy itself. I think that's a tricky one because the court will be loath to intervene unless there is some interpretational room. If the government has passed passed legislation with which it clearly intends to undo obligations under other legislation, until the court has had a chance to make a determination that this bit of law is supreme over that bit of law and therefore cannot be overridden, which is what this hangs on, right? This hangs on the court saying that uh, uh, this is incompatible with our obligations under, let us say, the UNHCR or let us say the uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, Okay. Just two examples there. So the court has to say that this bit of legislation is incompatible with our obligations under those, and that in this case, our obligation under those international treaties are supreme over this piece of legislation. This is really difficult to do when the government has basically made it very clear that it intends to override those bits of legislation. And remember, Parliament has approved this piece of legislation. They have passed it. So what you're asking the judiciary to do as, you know, the three branches of government, basically executive, legislature, judiciary, what you're asking the judiciary to do is to override something that the executive wants to do and that the legislature has given it permission to do and say no our interpretation of the law is that it is so incompatible we're going to stop it before it even takes off the ground. I think that's a tricky one. And I think the the, the Home Office will manage to, to get that flight to take off, even if it just has two people on it. Staying at home, the cost of living crisis continues to generate dire headlines for the government. Stories over the weekend included reports of a 39% increase in non-payments at petrol stations since January with people driving off forecourts without paying. 
stuff like this, staff shortages, airport chaos, it's all starting to feel quite 1970s, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the government is trying to make it feel 1970s. What do I mean by that? So this morning, the Office of National Statistics published its monthly estimates for April. UK GDP fell by 0.3%, I think. The decline in March was 0.1%. We are heading into a recession situation, which is two two consecutive quarters where the growth rates are negative. The CBI also published some forecasts overnight, downgraded its GDP growth outlook for 2022 from 5.1 to 3.7, which is quite a big downgrade. And its outlook for next year from 3% to 1%. Remember, the OECD thinks it will be 0%. They think the UK's economy won't grow at all next year. So the economy is going into a tailspin. And there is effectively nothing the government can do to stop it or wants to do to stop it because Johnson is so weak right now, any lever he tries to pull will upset one function of his party. If he tries to, you know, lower taxes and cut spending, the One Nation Tories will be upset. You know, he's there's a, a there's a, right now a leak that they're not planning to extend the school meals program over the summer. So there's likely to be resistance from his more compassionate side of the party. If he tries to keep services going and not reduce taxes, then the low tax side of his party will kick off. So there is nothing he can do because of the weak position he is in. So it's a given that people will suffer all right, there is a really hard year coming ahead. This means that the government's only political choice is to find external scapegoats. This is why it's pushing a war with the EU right now. This is why it's pushing a war with what it terms lefty lawyers. This is why it's trying to have a massive confrontation with unions. Remember, another thing we found out last week is that it plans to introduce legislation to basically bust strikes with temp staff. So when it can't do anything, its only possible plan is to create a situation of paralysis where it can at least reasonably, credibly claim, look, we are trying, but they won't let us. Give us more power. Give us a bigger mandate so we can crush the unions, so we can crush lefty lawyers, so we can crush the EU. This is Johnson's only remaining electoral platform. And this is key for people to understand that the chaos we're experiencing right now is in part deliberately confected because in the absence of this chaos, the situation is so clearly dire and of the government's own making that it has no argument with which to go to the people. Are Labour capitalising on this, do you think? I mean, what should they be doing in terms of, should they be you know, presenting a more coherent sort of policy platform in opposition to this? Well, always. I mean, the, the opposition could always do better. Yeah. Um, it, uh, my view is that th- there is at the moment a perception that Labour don't have enough 
eye-catching policies. And I think eye-catching policies would help to a certain extent, but I don't think they are what's missing. I think what's missing is a, a narrative. And those two things are not the same. Eye-catching policies fit into a narrative. They make the narrative credible. But without the narrative, you don't have a proposition for people at an election. Labour needs to tell voters what sort of country they will be living in if they elect a Labour government. And I don't think they've done that yet. So I think policies are slightly putting the cart before the horse. I think what we need, first of all, is a story. I think what we need is Keir Starmer to stand up and say, if you vote for me, this country will be, for instance, fairer. Government will be cleaner. I will force politicians to be more honest with you by, you know, maybe embedding the ministerial code into legislation or something like that. Mm. That the sort of offering he needs to make. He needs to make the sort of offering that says, this is the sort of country I will try to create for you to live in, rather than free broadband or, you know, a 5p of tax. I, I think those can fit into that narrative, but I think without the narrative, they're meaningless. They're just there for Johnson to essentially pinch if they are popular, much as he did with the windfall tax. We're also going into the final full week of campaigning for the two key by-elections in Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton, following the mm. resignations of Ahmed Khan and Neil Parrish. Uh, what's the current state of the races there? I think the Tories seem to me to have resigned to losing both, which is really quite extraordinary because, OK, Wakefield was a, a Labour seat until recently, even though they won it in 2019 relatively comfortably, the Tories did. But a reversal in that is slightly more expecting. Tifferton, though, you know, they had a big majority there. Mm. And polls at the moment are, are showing the Lib Dems ahead. I mean, to an extent, this is a function of expectation management. So the more they, they act as if they've lost them both, the more th the reaction of, Tory backbenchers becomes priced in, as it were, the less shocked there will be, the, the less room there will be for them to do the media around the next day and say, this is a disaster, he must go. So that's partly what they're doing. I mean, it is slightly to do with circumstances. Just to remind listeners, I mean, one by-election is happening because, you know, NMP couldn't stop watching porn in the Chamber of the Commons. And the other by-election is happening because that MP was convicted of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. You add that to the sense of lawlessness and a frat house atmosphere that Partygate told people, the lack of discipline. And it, may, it makes a law and order offering very, very difficult for the Tories. I mean, I really, I look forward to the next election. I look forward to their proposals on law and order because anything they say at the moment will sound borderline comical. Um, and so I think, I think they are likely to lose both of them, but it's unlikely to move the dial significantly. Hello. 
Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made a second visit to the country over the weekend, tweeting that with President Zelensky, I'll take stock of the joint work needed for reconstruction of the progress made by Ukraine on its European path. EU commissioners and officials are expected to look at Ukraine's bid next week ahead of a summit on 23rd to 24th of June that will likely take on the matter. Do we think that we're likely to see Ukraine fast-tracked into the EU on current current chatter? I think we're likely, uh, I say likely, not definitely, to see their application accepted, whether that results in a fast-track to membership I'm not sure about. So there is resistance from various quarters. There is basically strong, a strong wish for this to happen from the Baltic state countries plus Poland. So the three Baltic states and Poland are very, very keen for this to happen. There is resistance then from two or three disparate sources. So countries like Denmark or the Netherlands They have severe doubts about this because they think that Ukraine is not actually ready as a country for EU membership. So on the ordinary criteria in terms of economy, in terms of rule of law, in terms of corruption, in terms of competition, in in all the sort of areas you'd be looking at, they, they see that what Ukraine is trying to do is effectively use the emergency to bypass the ordinary criteria for membership. And if that happens, because remember, there are also two pending applications by Georgia and Moldova, it it would be very, very difficult to then not accept Georgia and Moldova, who are better in the, you know, 11 chapters, as it were, that, that determine your eligibility for membership. So that's one wing. Then there's another wing, which are basically the Russo-friendly countries, countries like Hungary, Cyprus, to a certain extent, Austria, Malta, where they object to Ukraine joining the EU because they feel it would upset Russia. Well, they know it will upset Russia because Putin called them and told them it would upset Russia. So there's resistance from that side. And then there is resistance, all the milder, from countries like France and Germany, who would like to push the idea of a sort of satellite membership. This is, this is something that's been going on a very, very long time, quite aside from Ukraine, and something that couldn't really be advanced because of the UK's objections and now can. So the idea is that there are there's a, a different tier of membership 
that ties you to the EU, but is slightly a looser relationship, especially when it comes to freedom of movement. And so they want to use Ukraine in part to push that idea that there there can be this tiered membership. So we will see what happens. I think the the um, the answer next week to the application will be almost certainly a yes. Obviously, someone can veto that, but I think at the moment that's unlikely to happen. Finally, today sees the second session of the January 6th hearings in the US. The first hearing took place last Thursday and included harrowing unseen video footage from the deadly insurrection at the Capitol. Hearing two starts today at 10 a.m. Eastern time and is aimed at showing that, quote, Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information, despite the fact he knew he had lost the election. Former Fox News staffer Chris Stiewalt will testify. Alex, the hearings are a bit more stylized than a standard hearing. We've had lots of sort of audio video. It's been put together more like a sort of dramatized news package. On the evidence of last week, how well do you think that format is working? For me, not fantastically well, but then again, I'm not the intended audience. Mm. Um, The intended audience are American people who enjoy the films of Jerry Bruckheimer. (laughs) Um, so, So, you know, I mean... I find I find American news in general quite cringe. Mm. You know, I find the the way people sort of play act a little bit for the camera and the dramatic music and the the sort of editing that's more reminiscent of an action film or a political thriller. I find that uncomfortable anyway. I don't think it has a place in the news. It's sensationalizing it. But then again, like I said, I'm not the intended audience. What's interesting is trying to determine what the intended audience is. Is it trying to fire up the democratic base, or is it actually targeted at slightly more undecided people, people who are wavering in their support of Republicans because of Trump. What what do you think? Which group do you think it goes to? I think the hope is that it'll punch through with, you know, viewers who are maybe, you know, have sort of slightly tuned out. I mean, there's there's been some interesting stuff about how the big sort of like lost group in American politics at the moment mm. is basically an extremist fringe on either side. But it's this huge group in the middle that just think it's so toxic. I don't want anything to do with it at all. So it felt like a lot of that recapping last week is almost trying to remind that ordinary bulk of people in the middle just what the stakes are here and how how important it is. Yes, there there was a sense of previously on whatever, however you want to call this show. Yeah, there was a sense of a recap. Like I said, it's not for me, but then again, it's not actually for me. Well, there'll be a uh, Jerry Bruckheimer box set coming your way next week, Alex. <laughs> and that's start your week. Alex, thank you for getting up early to join us. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon. We'd be really grateful, and it makes a huge difference to the operation of the show. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow for the panel show. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Justin Quirk with Alex Andreu. The producers were Yelena Sofonievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker 
is a Podmasters production.